Hello, and welcome to the Social Protection Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Sharp. There is growing awareness of the need for social protection systems to recognise and respond to the specific needs of women and girls over their life course. And we're increasingly alert to the way that programs might reinforce gendered norms, assuming women take on particular roles in terms of work and caring responsibilities. But can we, through social protection, challenge the power relations, structures and norms that produce and sustain inequalities between women and men? As we mark International Women's Day this month, In today's episode, we're looking at gender-transformative social protection and how these programs and systems can catalyse transformational change. My guests for today's episode are Tara Cookson, who is the Canada Research Chair in Gender Development and Global Public Policy at the University of British Columbia, Maya Gavrilovic, who is a social protection consultant, and Lauren Whitehead, who is social protection and gender lead at UNICEF headquarters. Welcome, Tara, Maya, and Lauren. Thanks so much for having me here today, Joe. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to be here with you and with my colleagues. Very glad to be here, Joe. Thanks so much for having me. So, Tara, let's start with you. In a recent paper that you co-authored, you have talked about how the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic on women motivated new calls to strengthen social protection systems from a gender perspective. And that's even though we saw many countries expanding their cash assistance, particularly through the pandemic. What did the COVID situation reveal about inequalities between men and women and how women are served or perhaps underserved by social protection? The pandemic really drove home the fact that no single social protection instrument or program can guarantee that women, or men for that matter, are protected through the various shocks that may occur throughout their lives as routine events of just living, never mind in the face of kind of a a global health crisis and the economic aftermath. So in particular, it revealed that cash itself isn't enough, particularly with respect to addressing the kind of gendered inequalities that are so deeply embedded in our societies. And I think this came to the fore in three main ways, although there are others. The first is care. Someone had to take care of children who weren't in school, weren't in daycare, and women largely assume this responsibility, and cash transfers couldn't solve that. The second was around GBV. Cash couldn't solve the rise in intimate partner violence as governments imposed lockdowns and restricted essential services. And then three, cash transfers alone aren't enough to address the kind of long-term nature of the shock that we saw. For example, individuals who were really hard hit in the service sectors, which are largely female dominated. I live in British Columbia, and there was a recent report published by the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives that found that in the hotel industry, in the tourism industry more broadly, where many of the, the workers are racialized and immigrant women, they're continuing to struggle with low rate wages and insecure work in an industry that still hasn't recovered. So all of this suggested a real need for a systems perspective with linkages with other policy areas, care, GBV and labor, and a view across the life course. Maya, also just to set us up for this discussion, I wanted to ask you about the different ways we talk about this continuum or the extent to which a social protection program or other kinds of programs consider gender. 
You'll hear, for example, people distinguish between programs that are gender blind or gender aware, gender transformative. I guess the question really is, what do we mean when we're talking about program being gender transformative or working towards transformative gender relations? Thank you, Joe. I think it's a very useful analytical tool, the gender integration continuum. Uh, the gender continuum has a range of different ways of integrating gender. One is the gender-blind approaches, and they're usually those that fail to recognize the differences in gender roles and unequal power relations between women and men and boys and girls. And in the context of social protection, they fail to recognize how gender inequalities affect poverty and vulnerability outcomes and, and gender differences. So, for example, the social security system, which doesn't really account for different life and work histories between women and men, those kind of gender-blind social security systems can really systematically disadvantage women in their access to contributory social security benefits. Then, on the other side of the spectrum, we have gender-aware approaches that do recognize the existing gender differences in inequalities and differences in roles and relations. And they do address them through programming. So within the typology, there are gender-sensitive approaches that consider gender roles and dynamics and address gender inequalities, but more so in order to meet project objectives. So, for example, a provision of childcare to encourage female workers to participate in public works programs can be considered a gender-sensitive measure that it's not necessarily focusing on redistributing or reducing unpaid work burdens for women but it's more sort of aiming to promote women's employment. Then there are gender responsive, and it's becoming sort of a conventional term. And that is really working to explicitly address and respond to women's specific needs, interests, and vulnerabilities. It can also specifically address the needs and interests and the vulnerabilities of men and boys. So provisional fee waivers, for example, for health insurance to poor women and adolescent girls, to help them overcome financial barriers and promote their access to health services. And then the bar sort of raises up further with gender transformative. And there is a growing interest in seeing how social protection can be gender transformative. Those are the, the sort of interventions that explicitly address the underlying structural causes of gender inequalities that can be related to labor markets, unpaid care work, you know, that push and trap women and girls in poverty. And I think from a sustainable poverty reduction perspective, there is a lot of importance and value in kind of um, expanding our approaches and thinking how social protection can be gender transformative. In this episode, we wanted to focus on gender transformation at that more ambitious end of that continuum that you've just outlined. And what I really wanted to do is start by looking at some of the outcomes we might associate with more equality and better outcomes for women. So, Lauren, can I come to you to focus on care? How can social protection systems address inequalities in household responsibilities and care work? Thanks so much for that, Trent. There are a number of ways that social protection can be a bit of a vector or kind of a conduit for addressing some of the issues around unpaid care, especially. It comes as no surprise to anyone, and I, I know Tara mentioned this at the opening as well, that care and support responsibilities primarily fall on women and girls. Most people know the statistic that around two to three times more unpaid care work takes place driven by women. Women as being the primary caregivers both in their own homes from an unpaid care perspective and then also outside of their homes as a paid care perspective. And in both cases, it's highly undervalued. I think people are less familiar sometimes with the issues that face girls. 
especially adolescent girls, but young girls as well in the home. And the fact that looking at all the hours that girls, adolescent girls and young girls spend on care, it's around 160 million hours per day. And then you ask the question of what is that to the exclusion of? And very often that means they're being pulled out of school. In some contexts, it means they're being sold off in, in marriage, for example, to perform care and domestic work in other households. The reason why I mentioned that social protection can be an anchor around these inclusive care and support systems is because social protection can give a household the kind of economic security it needs to address all of the care and support needs that are within that household already. So for example, having access to child benefits. If a household has access to child benefits, that means they can address the additional costs that come with raising their children, especially in the earliest years where we find that costs tend to soar, especially in years before kids are able to access, for example, free education systems, and they might need access to childcare. Access to affordable childcare itself is another element within a care and support system. Social protection also can be seen as an instrument to access this, whether it's providing vouchers to households, for example, or reduced costs, access to affordable childcare, or in some cases, providing the services directly when you think about creches. Even in some low and middle income country contexts, mobile creches for workers who are essentially on the move. So you have child benefits. You have access to affordable childcare in, in different ways, including vouchers and services. You have access to maternity benefits as well, so that pregnant women are able to afford the services that they need and support that they need during their pregnancy. You have job protections, which also can fall under social protection and national parental leave as well. I think it's very interesting when we talk about gender transformative policies and gender transformative social protection, when we think about something like national parental leave. If we can increase the number of fathers that are able to take some portion of their leave to care for children, then that, of course, relieves that burden on mothers. And that also has an impact on societally how caregiving is viewed. So it's not been necessarily just seen as the purview of the mother. And I think the last area is that social protection acts as a door to so many other services. It's actually providing direct referrals, things like access to health services because of the health insurance that social protection provides. So all of these pieces come together as sort of building blocks or components of inclusive care and support systems. And social protection is, is kind of a key element to be able to drive those. Tara, I wanted to come back to you and talk about work and paid work. And of course, care work and paid work are obviously often in indirect tension. But how could social protection improve women's participation in decent work and I guess otherwise contribute to economic empowerment through other mechanisms? So there's two main ways that I would typically think about this. First, social protection can make linkages to labor force participation for example, through public works programs, but also particularly in the case of formalized labor and contributory programs can also facilitate return to work after an absence like illness or maternity. The second way is actually through the sector itself. So the social policy sector and social protection systems specifically can be a source of decent work. Women make up a really significant share of the frontline workers who deliver social protection. And this is often really hard work, particularly in rural areas or conflict-affected contexts, contexts where social norms restrict women's mobility and ability to do their jobs. But if the work is decent, it should also increase um, those female workers' access to higher levels of social protection through that job. 
At the same time, if we are thinking about labor force participation and the connections with social protection in the kind of add and stir women in development paradigm, well, we know that too often the question of care that Lauren talked about remains unaddressed. So any sort of labor activation policy through social protection also needs to address care or it simply gets offloaded as those women go into the labor force. That work just gets offloaded to poor women, to racialized women, to immigrant women, and as Lauren mentioned, to girls. So it's always going back to what feminist economists have been talking about for decades that, you know, labor force participation or production, you know, the other side of that coin is social reproduction or care. And I think the recent sort of emerging conversations around the care economy and care systems are really interesting, particularly when they're thinking about those sectors as engines of job growth and the engines of the availability of decent work and decent employment through care jobs, which are also green jobs. So that fits really nicely into these discussions about the just transition. And I think the ILO recently estimated that of nearly 300 million jobs that the care sector could generate by 2035 with proper investment, 78% could be held by women um, and 84% could be formal employment. Um, And there's lots of examples in different countries where they're sort of striving towards this, like Uruguay and Latin America, Colombia, Mexico, and most recently, Kenya doing really interesting things in partnership with you and women around care systems as well and their linkages to social protection. Maya, coming to you, in a recent paper you've co-authored, which focuses on rural women, you highlight the fact that rural women are more likely to be food insecure, experience other kinds of deprivation, more so than men. What are some of the ways that social protection could contribute to transformative outcomes for poverty and food security and address some of those major disparities? The work that I've been doing for far is really trying to open up a discussion on what we mean by gender transformative approach in the context of social protection and maybe put forward some kind of a framework to, to think around it. What are the core elements and what are the core pathways or what are the entry points? We looked at five different levels of how this transformative change can be promoted. A lot of social protection is focused at individual or at the household level, but in addition to that, social protection can be designed or can influence changes at the community level. I think there's a lot of work to be done at the organizational level as well as the kind of macro environment. But in terms of the individual, I think giving women cash can be revolutionary. Itself, in some contexts, when they work as unpaid family workers, they simply don't even have access to basic cash. So giving them the cash and designating them as cash recipients can be transformative in itself. And it can lead to this reflection that they do deserve access to economic resources. By giving them the cash, they can also develop certain financial independence, which can expand their options and choices to kind of act independently and, you know, define the norm, which in many contexts is women cannot really autonomously kind of make decisions around expenditure and and consumption. At the community level, 
social assistance schemes or public works schemes can be combined with awareness raising activities that can tackle and improve community perceptions about various gender issues and promote equality. At the organizational level, um, change is very important to be promoted by reforming the kind of agencies who are responsible for designing and delivering social protection instruments and making sure that, again, that kind of examination of the internal gender biases are eliminated and work cultures, procedures, or the social protection policies and programs themselves, they eliminate gender bias and they produce more gender transformative outcomes. And I'm now working in Cambodia, working with the GIZ and the National Social Protection Commission, where we're doing study gender analysis of the social protection system to spot those gender biases and then organize a kind of series of capacity development activities to address them and, and almost reform their social protection system from a gender responsive perspective. And then at the macro level, social protection can promote normative changes in society at large through large-scale policies. And this could happen at two levels. One is, you know, promoting affirmative and anti-discrimination social protection policies to directly address or prevent gender gaps and structural inequalities, which are faced by women and girls. And the example there is really kind of reforming the social pension system, for example, to account for women's gaps on the labor market and interrupted work histories and introduce specific incentives and measures to make it more conducive to women and prevent their poverty and old age. Lauren, we've previously taken an in-depth look in this podcast at the impact that social protection programs can have on violence against women. Can you briefly outline how social protection can help to reduce intimate partner or family violence? As we've been discussing through this, it's sometimes the programs, but it's as much about the linkages to other services that that can provide. The World Bank has promoted a series of three different pathways that I think many in this space around gender and social protection have really taken up, which is around first, reducing poverty and food insecurity, second, empowering women, and third, increasing women's social capital. And by looking at these three pathways, you really do see in practice that social protection can be this kind of off-ramp away from some violent outcomes that women and girls face definitely the world over. So a big part of how that happens is really through changing power relations, changing those dynamics, whether it's within a household or whether it's even at a community level that uphold and prop up violent norms within society. And I think there's a couple of ways that you see social protection is especially adept at addressing. So if you think about reducing poverty and food insecurity, you see that social protection is a way ameliorating some of the difficult dynamics in a household when resources are scarce. So by ensuring that everybody actually has access to the resources they need for basic goods and services, it's able to essentially reduce household tensions in a way through reducing poverty and that food insecurity. You also see the empowerment aspect for women through the economic security, kind of the financial security that they receive. You can have the economic security to leave a violent relationship, for example, that otherwise you might feel compelled to stay in because you don't really have any particular other opportunities for access accessing resources. When you think about some of the active labor market programs, for example, that help women to gain access to work as well through social protection. If we're thinking about it from the perspective of girls, and especially adolescent girls who may experience uh, gender-based violence, 
in many cases, some of these girls then feel like they don't have any particular recourse if they do then, for example, become pregnant and, and have children of their own. And social protection is a way that they can have access to child benefits and enable them to go back to school, go back to continuing their education and therefore providing them the pathway from freedom from future violent relationships. You also see social protection providing financial resources to access sexual and reproductive health and give women greater control over their bodies. So these are just some of the examples of in practice. One area in particular, when we think about gender-based violence and social protection, that UNICEF has been especially drilling down into further and looking to drive more um, programming and policies is around child marriage. So there's the Global Programs in Child Marriage, which is a collaboration with UNICEF, UNFPA, and a number of different partners. And one aspect of that that we really look at are some of the poverty drivers of violence, and especially the poverty drivers that are linked to child marriage. So the government of Benin had a cash and care pilot where, and for those who aren't aware, in Benin, around 30% of girls are married in their childhoods, essentially. What the government was able to do, leveraging the social protection program, was to also mobilize the community, adolescent girls and boys, to bring in training and the cash plus element related to training on positive masculinities, for example, engaging and sensitizing with community leaders. So recognizing that it's not just about a top-down approach that's coming from government, but it really needs to be a bottom-up approach as well that's joined up with community leaders to start to shift some of the community social norms and specifically targeting, for example, religious leaders and elders who have some of the greatest influence in communities, demonstrating that value of the girl child, for example, and why she shouldn't be put through the violence of being put into child marriage and the impacts that that has on a household. Wildly successful and looking to scale up within Benin, but it just shows another example of how social structures and social norms around violence need to be shifted in collaboration with some of these social protection interventions. And then you can leverage something like a national cash transfer program, in the case of Benin, to do that. Tara, as we've been discussing, there's no such thing as a single gender transformative program that we get to implement and roll out and solve all of the problems. It's really clear from this discussion that we need to think at that systems level, how all kinds of programs, policies interact. But give us a sense of that? I mean, if we think about it at that systems level, it's a big project. How would we tackle that kind of systems change? I think we can think about it in two ways. First is by looking from the social protection system outwards. And that requires these discussions about transformative social protection to be had in tandem with discussions about other policy areas, employment policy, economic policy, GBV prevention and response, like Lauren was talking about, care policy and infrastructure, which provides the preconditions for caring. And second is looking inside the social protection system. So there's definitely a need to adopt a greater life course perspective, not just coverage for women when they're pregnant and have young children, which is, of course, very important and missing in a lot of contexts but also for women in their old age, nearing the end of a lifetime of having provided a lot of unpaid care and missed out on a lot of access to social protection. And these integrative and life course perspectives really aren't adopted often enough. We have several examples from a study of national social protection strategies, which are the kind of visions that governments lay out for their social protection systems. And this was a study I did with colleagues at UN Women and at Ladysmith. And in the study, we asked about 
whether governments envision synergies with these other key policy areas. And we found, for example, that while two-thirds of the strategies recognize unpaid care as a gender issue, less than half included any policy action at all to address it. So we have a recognition and response problem there. We also asked about whether governments covered women through various life course contingencies, and we looked at four that we considered to be gender-specific. So income security in cases of maternity or paternity, access to health care that includes maternity care, income security in widowhood, and income security for children. And of the 52 strategies from middle and low-income countries that we looked at, nearly all envisioned coverage for children, while less than half listed any kind of coverage at all for widows. And less than a fifth of the strategies included coverage for all four of these kind of life course contingencies. So there's a lot to do on both the integrative and the kind of life course perspectives, looking outside systems and looking inside systems to move towards more transformative ends. At the same time as we're talking about systems, many of us are working with programs and implementation. We're looking at how to improve specific designs rather than build new systems from the ground up. Maya, what are some of the other ideas for how to adjust the objectives or tweak the design features of social protection programs and their complementary interventions to encourage or move towards transformative outcomes? So features, say, for example, in the cash transfers, I mean, there are some core design features that can be tweaked and looked from a gender transformative lens. And so, for example, the size and the transfer of the cash can be designed in such a way to be more transformative. And for example, sometimes giving women lump sum payments, it can enable women to make investments in more strategic assets, like investing in renting of land or livestock, compared to smaller, you know, monthly payments that usually go towards basic sort of household consumption. So that's one of the examples of how you can really address maybe more transformative change. Then another sort of easy way to promote normative changes could be through nudges or messaging or labeling, which is usually sort of low-hanging fruit or a low-cost intervention with good effect. And messaging and labeling would very much depend, again, on what kind of objectives do you want to achieve. So, for example, Sudan campaigns were organized at the community level to promote that women should really receive the cash transfers and they should be the bearers of this cash because they should be the rights holders and this cash should be used by them for their own and children's needs rather than sort of being used for the overall household consumption. And the way this was carried, I think it was quite sensitively sort of carried in the communities. In discussions with UNICEF staff, they said that most of the men and most of the community leaders really kind of supported and promoted that women had autonomy over this cash. Then in, in addition to the core um, social protection features, I think combining cash or different types of social transfers with complementary measures that are very much focused on awareness raising and that are directly sort of promoting positive gender norms or gender attitudes is something that it's increasingly becoming popular and, and, and very frequent, you know, the so-called uh, cash or social transfer plus programming. 
And as I was saying, there are different ways of actually designing those depending on the context. Some involve men and boys in those discussions. Others focus more on women and girls. Lauren, we talk a lot in this space about how changing norms and power relations are fundamental to achieving transformational change. All of the guests have talked about that today. But at the same time, this is really challenging. So just to hear from you, what do we know about how effectively we can shift norms or that norms shift? What does that mean for how we design these kinds of programs that are, at the end of the day, big bureaucratic instruments, government-driven? How do we effectively consider norms in this context? I think this is a great question, and I've been thinking a lot about it. I I think you're right also to note that it's an ongoing debate, and there's a lot of contentious conversations that happen in this space. Is social protection even designed to influence norms? Are we asking too much? Are we overburdening the expectations of social protection programs to think about this? I like to be optimistic and think that, no, we're not necessarily. But again, like everything we've been saying, it's not a silver bullet social protection on its own won't necessarily shift drastically social norms because social protection and the design of these programs and policies is itself so heavily influenced by social norms as well. So we think about instrumentalizing social protection to influence policies and programs, but the ways in which those systems are set up already have been influenced by some of those same social norms. If we go back to thinking about something like care and the reality that care and support is so under-resourced, underdeveloped, undervalued, That's why we don't see more of it embedded in social protection programs and systems. There's this unwritten assumption that those care responsibilities within a household will rely on traditional gender and social norms and be addressed. So even when you think about a time like COVID-19, I think Tara was mentioning earlier, and we were saying that COVID-19 put so much of this relief, it made it very obvious. We saw a rise in global social protection programs. We thought that was going to be drastically different, but less than a a fifth of those programs, less than 20%, were actually gender responsive or transformative um, at all. Less than 20% even took gender into account. I basically say all of this to say we're starting on a back foot in a way within social protection. But again, I still remain optimistic. And I want to be optimistic because I do think there's a lot of empowerment potential that comes out of social protection that really can help address social norms. And I think there's a lot that social protection in some ways subtly does to start to shift the way we think about um, the roles that people play within society. For example, if you think about what Maya was mentioning before around how putting resources through social protection in the hands of women-headed households or even just targeting women within households, for example, getting those financial resources to them, I would say those approaches are even better when they're paired with this kind of training or support around intra-household decision-making between partners in the household. Another area where you see subtly social protection already is trying to address these norms is, of course, in care and support and thinking about the redistributive nature of caregiving and the one of the underlying goals of care and support policies, among many others, is redistributing some of that unpaid care burden and responsibility within a household. So I think some of these types of measures are already subtly shifting social norms, and you see that play out in many different regions of the world where we have a longer history of social protection being in place and the concomitant um, progression of gender equity in some of these countries as well. And then I think you have some of the more deliberate efforts. So if you're thinking about some of the cash plus models, like the MCCT plus in Sudan that Maya was talking about, for example, or if you think about other models, like, for example, in Ghana, the government of Ghana's integrated social services have worked to bring together 
access to protection services and access to social protection. So you have referral mechanisms in both directions, for example, for households. And I've specifically looked at this as a way of basically giving, especially women in households, the access to GBV services that they might not otherwise have if they weren't already within, say, the LEAP cash transfer program. That's their oversight. So one example I would give is thinking about PSMP in Ethiopia, where some of the research that we've done from our Office of Research has shown that there were a number of challenges that were faced in trying to apply gender transformative interventions, particularly in the community. So where you had some interventions that were more socially accepted by social norms, looking at women's traditional roles and access to child care, for example, those were well implemented. But then when you had more gender transformative interventions around bringing more women's leadership, for example, into the community, there was some resistance. And then you found that even the social service workforce didn't always apply those, even though they didn't actually carry out some of those interventions, even though those would have had these transformative impacts. So it is to say I'm optimistic, but we know that some of these interventions alone aren't enough. Finally, a question for you all, and it's a big one. If you were to try to imagine a truly feminist social protection system, a system where achieving gender equality and transformation was a core objective alongside some of those other things like poverty reduction, supporting people through shocks, how would that be different to the systems we have today? I think at the very baseline, it requires recognising that social protection systems are still embedded in development models where women's caring labour doesn't count, so to speak. So short of overhauling those economic systems, we need to be making these linkages with other areas of social policy and development that matter for women's flourishing. Decent work, higher levels of protection, care systems, infrastructure, and having very practically those line ministries at the table and thinking through this. Coming back to you, what would a truly feminist social protection system look like that really put gender transformation at the heart? How would that be different to what we have now? Well, I think we still have a lot of work to be done. I think even to accept and be committed fully to you know gender re- responsive, and then slowly build up into transformative, and then you know feminist. It's a huge task. I think one of the first things is really building good evidence base, collecting more data, and in particular, kind of involving women, girls, men and boys in the participatory research to really tease out and understand, you know, context-based how these, as I said, norms and inequalities translate into poverty and vulnerability outcomes. And I think this is often neglected. The first one is often neglected that masculine identities or the patriarchal social systems can be harmful to men and boys in terms of their development and well-being outcomes. And I think we often forget that, and, and that in itself is a, an unjust sort of outcome, and that through a truly feminist approach should be really addressed. I really appreciate your point that we are a really long way from achieving these kinds of changes, that most social protection systems are not set up for this purpose, because we can get a bit carried away sometimes with all of the possibilities and the prospects. And it's really important to be grounded in those realities that we're still a long way away. I think in that way, I have to echo part of what Maya was actually just saying around participatory approaches. I fully agree around participatory research, especially. But I would also say participatory policymaking. Um, And how are you engaging different groups in the design of policymaking? So where we see women and girls 
are often not at the table, but to Maya's point as well, boys aren't necessarily at the table either. And so I think that's a really important one. And then the only other one I would say would be around progressive universalism or social protection. I think that would be a very radical and feminist approach to thinking about social protection that's truly proactive along the life course. And some of the examples that we're saying today, everything around having access from the stage of maternity to early childhood, middle childhood, adolescence, to working age, adulthood, older adulthood, et cetera, just really thinking about a person's needs across the life course and then proactively addressing with benefits and services, with contributory, non-contributory schemes, and not necessarily just having this reactivity to poverty alone as being our North Star. Tara, Maya, and Lauren, thank you so much for joining me on the Social Protection Podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. It was great to be here with all of you. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share these reflections. Thank you so much. We're really glad to be here. Can't wait to hear it. Before we go, we like to end each episode with some quick wins. We ask our guests to bring in some recommendations for research, news or events that have sparked their interest and that we think you should know more about. Joining us today for Quick Wins is Tia Palermo, who is president at Policy Research Solutions, which goes by the name of Presto, and associate professor at the University of Buffalo. Welcome, Tia. Great to be here. You've brought in several papers to talk about today. Let's start with a new systematic review from Peterson et al. for CGD on the impacts of social safety nets on women's economic inclusion and agency. And as we've heard in today's episode, this is, of course, a real area of interest as we think about how social protection can contribute to women's empowerment. How does this review add to the literature? This study by Amber Peterman and colleagues is the first to comprehensively review and perform a meta-analysis of impacts across different types of social safety nets on women's economic achievement and agency. The review is extensive, covering over 100 publications across 42 lower and middle-income countries. The authors found that when examining all the types of social safety nets together, estimated impacts were positive and statistically significant for both economic achievement and agency. Then when examining impacts by social safety net type, they find some very interesting findings with respect to how unconditional cash transfers differ from those of conditional cash transfers. The authors found that unconditional cash transfers had large, positive, and statistically significant impacts, while the estimated impacts of conditional cash transfers were not only smaller, but also only marginally statistically significant. Thank you, Tia. That's a really interesting distinction. I think probably well worth looking that paper out just to unpack that finding that you've just um, mentioned there. Next up, you've also brought a new paper from IFPRI about how social protection can reduce women and girls' vulnerability and improve their ability to respond to climate hazards. Yes, this paper is leveraging social protection to support women's and girls' climate resilience in low- and middle-income countries. It's by Melissa Idrobo and colleagues. And the paper is valuable and timely because COP28 recently highlighted the unequal impact of climate change on marginal groups like women and girls and the need for gender-responsive climate finance. What I particularly like about this review is that they have organized the literature around gender differences in exposure to climate hazards 
sensitivity to climate hazards and adaptive capacities. It's exciting to see a lot more analysis and thinking of how social protection can contribute to climate resilience, adaptation and so on, isn't it? And if listeners missed our last episode, we talked about this in the context of last year's COP, the new loss and damage fund and the many ways that social protection is being called on as we get to grips with the emerging impacts of the changing climate. Tia, what's your next pick? I wanted to highlight a recent study from Monica lambon Quefio from the University of Ghana and colleagues from the Transfer Project, looking at how the government of Malawi's cash transfer program, which is targeted to ultra-poor, labor-constrained households, can enable safe transition to adulthood among adolescents and youth in these households. This is a really useful paper because it examines differences in program impacts by sex across a broad range of indicators related to the safe transition to adulthood, including physical and mental health, education, sexual and reproductive health, time use, and HIV risk. Thanks, Tia. I had a quick look at this paper ahead of the recording, and I really would recommend people have a look at it. It's interesting to hear about program impacts for this age group, which I think is still relatively new in a field which is often more focused on the other life stages, early years, working age, all of that sort of thing. And finally, you and one of our other guests on the interview this episode published a paper and a brief last year for STAR looking at how sex desegregated data is collected and analysed in social protection systems. In particular, the brief provides recommendations for national statistics officers for integrating gender into household surveys. How well are we collecting this kind of gender disaggregated data? And could you give us perhaps one practical suggestion for how we could improve collection and analysis? Maya Gavrilovich and I found that development agencies, including ILO, World Bank, and UNICEF, are making progress in improving the collection, analysis, and reporting of sex-disaggregated data from social protection systems. However, efforts to date remain siloed, and the ability to analyze and report on sex-disaggregated data are limited by what data we are or actually are not being collected in the first place. So to that end, it would be really helpful first to expand the UN Statistical Division's minimum list of gender indicators, which is used as a guide for national production and international compilation of gender statistics to include social protection indicators. And in addition, to enable this recommended data analysis, national statistics offices should better integrate gender into their household surveys when asking questions on national social protection programs. They can do this if surveys include questions about intended beneficiaries and designated recipients of the programs at the individual level and allow for multiple beneficiaries and recipients for each social protection program as applicable. These are really important steps towards getting that much better picture of how social protection is impacting different members of the household and men and women in different ways. Tia, thank you so much for joining me today on the Social Protection Podcast. Thank you, Joe. And thank you for listening to the Social Protection Podcast. We are a production of socialprotection.org. Follow us on Twitter at SP underscore Gateway and find us on Facebook, YouTube and LinkedIn. Subscribe to this podcast via Apple Podcast or Spotify and we love it when you leave a review. Happy International Women's Day. Back next month. See you then.